Real Cuff Radio is about to begin. Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Well, welcome to Real Cuff Radio today. Uh, we have an author online with Sandra and I. The book is called Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace by Deborah Murky. Uh, believe me, we've read this book. It is absolutely uh, mind-blowing. But I'm going to let her come on board and uh, tell a lot of her story. Stay tuned and listen, uh, for this is one book worth reading. And we're looking forward today to hearing other stuff as well that's not in the book. Welcome, Deborah. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, one thing I didn't talk about is all your, your list of everything that you've done. That is absolutely incredible. How, that's one thing when I was reading the book, I could not believe how much you were involved in. And there's only 24 hours in the day, and I go, man, that really stretched me. I thought, if I'm complaining about what I'm doing, I don't know how in the world, but God, what you did. That is just incredible how many hours in the day and what you got done. So, But uh, if you would like to, I'm not going to give away your book right now. I just thought, if you want to go ahead and start telling us about... Uh, how you grew up and met your husband and then became even a foster parent. I'd like to hear some of those things, and then we can go into more about what your book's about. Sure. So feel free. That's, okay. Well, that, that's, that's great. Well, I was born and uh, raised in California uh, along the beaches, the South Bay area, along Redondo, Torrance, Manhattan Beach in that area and Rolling Hills. And um, I kind of considered myself sort of a beach kid. I, I love the ocean, love the beach. Grew up there with uh, three older sisters. I was the youngest of the four. And uh, my oldest sister had, uh, when she was seven years old, she was nine years older than me, but when she was seven, she ended up with polio. And so when by the time I was born, I was dealing with uh, an older sister in crutches and wheelchairs and leg braces and surgeries and different things like that. She and I were very close. My two middle sisters were very close, but my oldest sister pretty much raised me. And as we all grew up together, my father traveled a lot. But when I was eight years old, my parents divorced. I really looked to my older sister for mothering and for care, and, um, and she was always wonderful. But the thing was, was great, I considered our family a church-going, dysfunctional family. And we would go to church. My father was even uh, a deacon in the church. And we always looked great. You know, as little girls, we had the shiny little shoes and our hair perfect. And my mother made sure we all looked great. But that was, again, on the outside. You know, behind closed doors, we were a very dysfunctional family. And so my oldest sister... Uh, when she was 16, went to was invited to a Billy Graham uh, crusade at the Hollywood Bowl in California with a friend of hers from school who was a Christian, and my sister received the Lord during that time. So after she came back from that crusade, she was just 
we just watched her become a different person. And she tried to minister to the rest of us, but it didn't go off really well. In fact, I was such a loving little sister that by the time I was about 10 or 12, I used to call her a Jesus freak, and I had all kinds of warm, fuzzy, loving titles for her. And uh, But she was so faithful, and she prayed for all of us. And again, even though we were a church-going family, uh, it wasn't until later in life, of course, that I realized we were really not a Christian family, and we did not know uh, the Lord Jesus as our Savior. So... She was very, very faithful in my life, and um, I dedicated the book to her because of that. So as I grew up now with a single mom, my older sisters were pretty much in the later years of high school and college. I was the youngest left at home, so I grew up the rest of uh, my years with a single mom who was bitter, and um, it was very, very difficult. But when I was a teenager, I went to live with my father in New York. I, I just battled my mother with the fact that I never, being the youngest, I never got to really know him. And uh, I really wanted to, I only had a few more years left for high school until I was out on my own, and I wanted to get to know him. So she finally let me go, and I did go and live with my father for about a year and a half in New Jersey, and then came back home and finished my senior year in California. And then after that, moved out with some girlfriends, and uh, I kind of went on from there. It wasn't until I was about 26 years old, that I'd moved to Houston. I actually was married at that time and, and had my two, two first two little children. And that was uh, very sad, an abusive marriage, and I ended up in divorce when I moved to Houston. And so after that time, uh, probably about a year later, uh, I was working in a restaurant where uh, my boss, was uh, single, and of course at that time I was single, and all the employees thought we were just this, would make this darling couple. So they really uh, plotted and planned how to get us together, and it worked. <laughs> so I married my husband. We've been married now for 40 years. But again, neither one of us were Christians. After we were married, uh, we came to visit uh, a family in Wyoming, his family. That's where many of the generations on his side were from. And I fell in love with Wyoming. I thought I'd never leave the ocean, but I was willing to trade it for the Rockies and fell in love with it. And we said, this is where we want to raise our children. This is where we want to be. So we moved to Wyoming two weeks before uh, we had our third child. It was shortly after that time. uh, We were just settling in in the winter. And we saw an advertisement on television that in our community, there was a real need for foster parents. And when I thought back of growing up, I always loved children. I always tried to be involved in a community of raising funds. Uh, I would bring a wheelbarrow around my neighborhood when I was little and collect food uh, for the poor, for my church. And, of course, my oldest sister, I saw many needs for her physically. Also, one of my sisters had a personal friend that was deaf. So I saw all of these needs of other people outside of our own family. I found that I just really had a heart for people that had needs. So when we, my husband and I saw this commercial on television, we looked at each other and said, you know, we don't have a lot, uh, but we have a a nice home and we have love in our heart and we could certainly bring in, uh, you know, a child or two from the community temporarily, you know, who might be in need. And so we agreed on that and I went down and filled up the paperwork and we were in training within weeks of that. 
and that's how we became foster parents. And that's sort of the quick story of my life. No, that that's wonderful because I find it very interesting. We just had cities fest here in East Texas with Andrew Palau, and they mm-hmm. had, I believe, I might be wrong, but I think it was five targets for this area. And what they mentioned this weekend was one of the targets was on helping the community with foster care. They were mentioning, mm. uh, I believe it was the number of 100 kids were without homes right now and that this was one of the areas they were targeting to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Great. kind of interesting that that was just this weekend and here now we're talking about foster care and your book and how you got there. You answered the call by an ad. But you have to remember what I see, too, is you and your husband both saw it at the same time. We're both in agreement. And obviously, it was both in putting your hearts to do that. And, yes. And uh, that's a good thing to be so. So let me ask you one question. Um, sure. How long did the training take? Well, it was quite a while ago now. The, the training wasn't very long. I think we had to go twice a week for maybe a month, something like that, or six weeks. And uh, it was in the evening, of course, because people worked. And so at that time, there wasn't a real long or extensive training. As years went on, social services became a little bit more detailed. The training was a little more involved and, and longer. And I think that was just as they started to see in the community different needs. You know, they needed to extend that training. And we did go back for a special training to be therapeutic foster parents. And that, again, was probably three or four weeks of special training for children that had special needs. Who was your first child? He was, was a little one or two or? Indian boy. It was just one. It was a little boy about seven years old. And it turned out that his mother was from one of the reservations here. But she, she had drug issues, and she had lived here in our community shortly. One day he came home. Fortunately, he lived in a little apartment building. And he came home and... The door was locked. The mother had just disappeared and was gone. It was neighbors that found him sitting by the front door and, you know, hours and hours later and finally called social services. So they brought him to us. He was our first child. Very sweet, very quiet. But that was really an education because we found that in Wyoming, we were not only dealing with Wyoming law or, or even our national, you know, laws over this, but we also had to deal with uh, the Indian Reservation and they have their own set of rules. So it was quite an education with our first child. How long have you been doing this now? Well, we are not foster parents today, but we had almost 18 years um, as foster parents. That is amazing. So selfless. I, again, I'm just sitting here going, blown away at, at the time, running around with your own. I mean, I think about my own kids. <laughs> and then adding that into the mix, and I go, oh, Lord. But uh, just... Your book just stretched my heart to go, what am I willing? You know, that's one thing that I really got from your book was when the Lord was working on you regarding specifically the Bauer family and doing what he was asking you to do, whether you felt like doing it or not. How God began to work on you during even the foster care way and starting to just lean on him more doing what he's asked you to do because these were some very uh, traumatic situations. I'm wondering if we should talk a little bit about that. People that are listening right now wouldn't understand. So I'll just go ahead. In the book, she talks about a murder 
from a mother that murdered one of the children. And I'll let you read the book because the book has so much detail and it's so good. But how this traumatic event, she had to go ahead and even um, start visiting the mother that murdered the child. You want to go ahead and explain more about even how your family, because from what I got from the book that your your kids were, they couldn't believe it and your husband couldn't believe it that you were going to visit this woman and you didn't even want to go visit her, but you did right. That's where the miraculous grace comes in, the name of your book. You didn't do this right away. This was a, a time of preparation period, God getting to the point to just trust them to be willing to do this. Well, I think it's important to remember that when, we, when my husband and I first became foster parents, neither one of us were Christians. We didn't become Christians until about two years after that. And so... Uh, How our, did you become well, Christian? Well, you know, my sister, my, my Jesus freak sister, who I absolutely adore and love and so thankful for her, um, you know, she just gently and lovingly always ministered to me uh, when I would call or had an issue. And so... You know, just like my mother and father did, my husband and I would take our children to church. But again, we we were not we had we had not received the Lord. We didn't really understand all that. We were we went to church as a family, as if one would floss every morning. You know, it's like that's it's interesting that you, that you should do. And so I, huh. my husband stopped going, and um, and I was taking my children, and I was our marriage wasn't doing real well at that time, and I was struggling. And uh, I took my children to church, a little church that we hadn't been to, a different one. And um, I heard a message from Deuteronomy on the, the sins of the parents from the pastor and how they wow. were passed down to the third and fourth, fourth generation. And I thought, it just was a wake-up call for me. I thought, okay, I realized I was carrying baggage from my parents and my grandparents. And I kept wanting to do things right for my children, but I didn't really know how. And so... All of a sudden, I, I, I just thought, I don't want to pass these curses on to my children. And so the message went on to say that through Christ, you know, these curses can be broken and we can have a change of life. And, and, and we, we really have a say-so in this, you know, through, through the help of God. So I, I, there was an invitation at the church to come forward and receive Christ, which I had not done. But I went home. And, and got my family their, their lunch. And then I went up to my room and locked my door and laid down flat on my face on the floor because I wanted to really humble myself before God. And I just said, I'm done and I'm yours and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Just take over I my like life, whatever prayer. you want to do. Yes, I like that. Wonderful. That is so simplified, but I like that. I'm done. Take my life. I'm yours. <laughs> yes, I like that. Yes. That's great. That was my... That was my big, long, complicated prayer to God. <laughs> there you but, go. Um, it was One, two, three. Totally, yes, it was totally my heart. What was interesting enough, it was that when I, I got up off the floor and I sat on the edge of my bed, and the first thing that came to my mind and in my heart was uh, the issue of forgiveness. And I thought, Lord, I want to make this commitment to you for the next year. Anytime I'm asked you know, to, to uh, forgive or called to um ask somebody else for forgiveness or for God, that please let me do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make this commitment for the next year. Well, looking back, I think the Lord must have really been laughing because he thought, okay, I put this in your heart, but I realize now he was really calling me to a ministry of forgiveness because there's been so many things in my life 
that I've either had to minister to others on the issue of forgiveness, either I have had to forgive or I've needed to ask for forgiveness for myself and that there's such redemption and peace in that and life. And so now I realize that that's what he was really calling to, assigning me this ministry of forgiveness. So as we move forward now and, and with this story, um, that was a strong conviction in my life. And he, he had already been preparing me, as I look back, for such a time as this, in a sense, with, um, with this story. And, you know, as much as I was concerned about this child going home, uh, when that call came in to me and from the social services said that they had found her body, uh, we were devastated. My, my children, my husband and I were absolutely devastated. And I knew, and just in my gut feeling, that there was something very, very wrong. But, of course, I would never have wanted to hear those words, you know, that she had been murdered. And so it was the next morning when uh, this little girl's mother called me and from the jail and asked if I would come see her. And at first, my human thoughts were, are you kidding me? You know how much I love this little girl. You know how much we, we tried to uh, keep her with us until mom could get her life in order. And mom kept saying no. And so I knew that she knew exactly how I felt about this child. I couldn't believe she would be calling me to, um, and then I had become the Jesus freak, of course, in her life, you know. And so why would she be calling me? And I wanted desperately to hang up. I was just so angry and so hurt and um, wanted to hang up that phone with every part of my being. But I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying, you know, you are my hands and feet and mouthpiece. And if she called me, meaning if she called Jesus, would he take her call? And I realized then, you know, I have a decision to make. If, I, if I'm going to really walk with God, if I'm going to claim to, to be a Christian, if I'm going to be a disciple of Christ, um, then I better commit all the way or, or don't profess that I'm a Christian. And so within seconds, you know, my answer was yes, I'll take the call. It was very difficult. I bet. Wow. Sometimes we're the only Jesus somebody's going to see or hear. This is true. Sandra, do you have anything you'd like oh, to I'm just talk sitting. about the book? This was the most emotional book I've read, and I was just sobbing and sobbing, and you'd said, oh. you're going to enjoy this, and my husband said, what is going on? And I said, oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful because it was all God's miraculous grace and mercy there's a whole book so we don't want to give a lot of it away but but it will be an awesome read because you'll see that forgiveness throughout it bringing things back i know that you must have had such anger initially i say that when that judge ordered her to go back to her mother and yet you knew that was a big deal to deal with, was it not, to forgive him? You know, that was very difficult as well because, uh, and God continues to, but it was a situation that I all of a sudden I realized I had absolutely no control. I had no say-so, I, no input. Nobody, nobody wanted to listen to what I had to say as far as my concerns. The caseworker had, but the judge wasn't even willing to listen to her. And um, I just couldn't understand. And I... So my hands were totally tied legally, uh, and, and I had no authority, and nobody really wanted to hear. 
and I, I don't think I've ever felt in my life that I had such little control. You know, it, usually we think, well, we could do something little or say something or have some effect. And yet in that case, I had none. And I had absolutely no choice but to return this child, knowing I was returning her to an extremely unsafe situation. You know, going through all of that and living through that, and I think for anybody that goes through, say, a crisis or a really, really tough time, I I think that we put ourselves sort of on survival mode. You know, we have to still breathe. We have to still eat. We have to sometimes still work or take care of family members. And so when I was going through all of that, I I had to keep moving. I mean, I I couldn't just stop. I I couldn't go down with picket signs. I I had a family. I had my own children to take care of and my my husband. and, And I had to just keep moving forward. But what I found was that writing this book was very hard. And I probably cried more writing it than I did even living through it, though there were many, many years of tears. Because when you're writing, you need to really hit replay and you have to stop and you have to focus and you have to remember, you know, how did you feel and what was going on. And writing the book, I felt, I think, even more of an impact. And I found it so interesting because I had to go through all those emotions again. I had to go through that anger. You know, I had to go through the struggle. I had to, the Lord had to remind me of the places and the people that I had willed myself to forgive and that's just how I feel that it is. We, God commands us to forgive, and we have to say it before we'll ever feel it. And writing the book, uh, you know, God sort of took me back again, and had I had to work through it again. I had to work through another level of forgiveness. And I'm very grateful for that because of where he's brought me. But I just think that uh, it's such a great lesson for us in anything in our lives that we have people to forgive or ask forgiveness from. And that it's something that it really is a process. It's not an overnight. It's not just a few words and it's not just a one-time situation. It's truly a process. And with the Lord, our hearts can heal and we can believe that forgiveness that we, we spoke. Uh, because I did not necessarily believe it when I said it. I just knew God was commanding me to speak the words of forgiveness. And then he, he said, I'll, I'll bring you along. You know, I'll, I'll help you to really believe and to feel that forgiveness. Just trust me. So I've learned, and as I've told my own children, you know, when we don't understand, all we can do is trust. And that's what faith is all about. Deborah, in the midst of all of this, and I've just been going through such an emotional thing reading it, and when I got to the pageant, that you ended up in, I stopped and I laughed because we live right here. Tyler's only 10 miles south. Oh, really? And I sobbed because I thought God provided that. I know it was stressful, but I think he provided that as a gift in the midst of all the, the turmoil, something totally different and honored you with with that pageant, which is uh, international women's. It is awesome. That was so funny. And I'm so glad that you saw the humor in that because it was probably the only area in this story that I could bring humor to it. Um, there was so I much still cried really- and I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I felt like a fish out of water. It was so on me. And, um, and I questioned God throughout that whole pageant, thinking, what are you doing? Why are you just totally taking me out of my comfort zone and putting me in this, you know, in this situation that was just entirely not me? And yet he really taught me a lot through that. He, he did. And it was, it was fun. When you went, when you actually went into prison, working in a prison, that was a totally different thing. And but one instance was uh, that really touched my heart because I've gone into prisons and and jails and halfway houses and even psych wards mm-hmm. for nearly forty years. The women were rioting and threatened with lockdown because of a guard that had really upset them. She wasn't a loving guard. That's all I can say. <laughs> and how God sent you in and gave you wisdom. Tell us about that because that was just, that was special. Well, you know, I was very, very grateful because uh, when I did become uh, a detention officer, uh, my own family, they just, they know that I, I, I just answer these calls and they're all crazy. I've had so many different sort of jobs in a sense, but when I was going to do that, I was actually in uh, a Christian college taking courses because I wanted to become a, a prison chaplain. And then my daughter ended up, one of my daughters ended up with um, a second bout of cancer and I had to go to work. So I, I had somebody suggest to me, they said, you know, you've been a jail chaplain and you want to do this in the prison. Why don't you, why don't you uh, go in and apply it to the local county jail here in in phoenix we were in phoenix at the time and at first i thought are you kidding and my family laughed as well but then the more i thought about it i thought you know that would be great i would really have obviously an inside perspective and be able to maybe minister to these women even even better so i did do that uh what was fortunate was that when i went in i was not only going in as far as a job as an officer wearing army boots and a badge but I also saw it as ministry opportunity. So I would have to do my job and I would have to be, you know, uh, the authority in the situation, but I would be over like 130, 150 women alone in a whole dorm for eight hours. And so I had this captive audience is the way I saw it. But over a year's time, I had the opportunity to pray with many of them, pray for them. They began to build some trust in me. Uh, to the best that they could, that at least that I that they, I cared about them. And so when this particular situation came up and uh, an officer was over the radio uh, screaming that there was going to be an inmate fight and we need they needed support, we all came running down the hall with the sergeant and the other officers. And this dorm, I don't think I'd ever seen a, a dorm so out of control, so angry. And this officer, she's the one that it got them all going and got them all upset. So when my uh, sergeant said, you know, to, to all of them, they had to get down back on their bunks and lock down. They were so yelling and mad and angry. And he told them they were all going to be on lockdown, you know, for a number of days and, and lose all their visitation. They didn't calm down. And he told the officer to take a walk and cool off. And then he looked at me and said, Officer Murky, you're in charge. And I was like, what? You're leaving me with this you know, totally a riotous group of women. And so he just threatened them and lectured them that, you know, they'd be on lockdown for days if, if they didn't stay on their bunks and calm down. So everybody left and I was there alone. And I just started praying. 
And um, as soon as the sergeant left, of course, they were all yelling and screaming even more and angry. And uh, he just he just said, you know, you're, go walk among them. Don't stand back here across the room. Go walk among them. Walk up and down the bunks and, and look them in the eye. And I did. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I, they could start any minute and just lose it, and I would be here all alone. And um, I thought, well, I can't, I can't get their attention. They're so loud. I can't even get their attention to calm them down. But that's when the Lord laid it on my heart. He said, tell them you have a question. So I just started one by one saying, I have a question. If you can help everybody to calm down. I'm just trying to get the inmates to get the inmates to calm down. I have a question for all of you. So I started getting them a little bit curious about that, speaking softly to them. And uh, eventually, uh, the inmates themselves said, Officer Murky has a question. And I thought it was so interesting God would choose that because it's not that he said, tell them you have something to tell them. You know, they've been told, you know, for much of their life and um, they didn't want to hear anything that somebody had to tell them but to say I had a question it caused curiosity so I finally just you know took the mother hand roll and said I'm not going to ask you all the question tell you all quiet down and everybody has to be quiet and I believe God used that to really start calming their hearts their breathing you know their energy so finally finally I said okay this is my question which was even funnier because I didn't have a question I was still waiting on God to give me whatever this question was that I was supposed to ask. And once they all calmed down, then the question came to me. And the question was, how many of you are mothers? When that came out of my mouth, I I really thought, I just kind of shot up a prayer to God and said, really? What are you you planning on doing with this? About 90% of the women there slowly raised their hands and it suddenly started to soften their hearts. And then they allowed me to minister to them and uh, was able to calm down the whole, the whole dorm. It was really, it was really pretty miraculous. It was crazy. <laughs> that lockdown takes away their privileges for days. Yes. No visitation. So, yeah. No vi- Some of them have, yeah. sometimes they'll have to stay on their people. bunk beds yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Well, this is well, been one. Well, Deborah, I just want to thank you so much for uh, coming on. Uh, your book is a must-read. It's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, it's called Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace by Deborah Murky. Um, you can get it on Amazon and all other types of ways. But before we end this, I kind of thought while you were talking about being a minister of forgiveness, and yes. I thought maybe you would pray for the people now that God would lay on your heart that are walking through a really hard time forgiving or yes. whomever. If you would like to pass that off to the listeners, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. You would like me to pray? Yes. Or you pray you, for the oh, audience. Absolutely. I would love to. Yes. Okay. <sighs> Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in praise and thanksgiving, and we thank you first, Lord, for who you are. And we thank you for loving us. And Father, for all who are listening, I just pray, Father, that you would instill in them the importance of forgiveness. Jesus came to be the forgiveness. And for those of us who love the Lord and and want to be free of forgiveness, 
bitterness and burdens, hatred, and all of these things, all they do is just weigh us down. They just stifle us. They just keep us from living with and for you. And I pray, Father, for everyone who is listening that you would instill in their heart that forgiveness is really what frees us up. It frees us up to do your work, uh, to serve in your ministry. It frees us up to hear other people's hearts, to really love. And so I just pray for all of those who um, have heard this message today, that they would just go to their face um, as I had to and say, Lord, I'm done. I'm done with unforgiveness. I'm done with bitterness. I am done with this. And I ask that you would take it, that you would heal me, and that you would use me to do great things uh, for you and for your kingdom. Because I know that as I walk in unforgiveness, all it is is it's chaining me down. It's just keeping me from serving you and from really experiencing the full love that you have for me. I pray this for everyone um, that God is going to use them and that he will empower them through the freedom of forgiveness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I agree. Well, thank you so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was marvelous. And uh, we just bless you and all that you set your hands to do. Thank you so much. And I appreciate both of you and all that you do. And I just pray that God would really use this story to minister to many people. Thank you. Have a great day. That's a wrap. You as well. Thank you. Thank you, ladies.